As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Max Verstappen made light of a good penalty to take yet another comfortable win in the Belgian Grand Prix, and also won the sprint race for good measure. But there were plenty of talking points behind, with wet conditions, another tight battle for best of the rest, and some great racing down the field. I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to work through a very damp spa weekend are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Scott, how have you enjoyed spa? Nice and damp. Uh, yeah, nice and damp. The uh, quintessential Belgian Grand Prix experience, I think, uh not a lot to be said for the quality of things like traffic management and um, some slightly surly people in media catering at, actually at, at the track. But they're, I feel like they're trying to bring this, like, sort of force this race into modern Liberty era F1 standards. But it, it does feel a little bit away behind others. I mean, I started the podcast last week after the Hungarian Grand Prix waxing lyrical about how much I really like being at the Hungaro ring and I've I really like that race as a, as, as a classic race. And obviously Spa has loads of charm and there's lots to love about it. But as a modern Grand Prix, it, it is slipping just a little bit. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. It's it's one of those ones that, um, yeah, you almost feel like apologising for having to be here at times with some of it. But I hope it was great for the fans. Huge crowd here, obviously. But I do feel for them a little bit soaking wet, particularly those who are camping, which is a pretty big number of the fans. Mark Hughes, how have you enjoyed it? Yeah, I some somebody told me that there were five really scorching races in a row here, and I must have been here when they happened. But <laughs> I just don't remember that. Every time I think of Spa, it's always it's always like this. This is how I think of Spa. It's it's just it rains and then it stops raining, and then it rains and then the sun shines and then it rains and it's you know the, the day goes on, and that's just yeah, that's just how it is. And um, yeah, I really do. Um, I, I echo Scott on the, uh, the 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 poor spectators. They 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 brave the elements and you know got their umbrellas up and down, their ponchos on and off, and 
<laughs> but it is a magnificent racetrack, and it is very, very beautiful, and it is very, very thrilling. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's got a lot going for it. Exactly. It is a legendary circuit. But, uh, yeah, maybe a little bit more work to be done, I think, perhaps, on the uh, some of the things surrounding it. But, yeah, I hope everyone in the crowd enjoyed their weekend. Let's get on with it, Mark, because there were some complications for Max Verstappen this weekend. In both the sprint race and the Grand Prix itself, he had to do some overtaking to earn his victory. But was there ever any doubt? Not really. Um, you, you, you know, you had to get past Oscar Piastri uh, in the in the sprint race, and he had to get up from sixth position into the lead for the Grand Prix. But he had such an underlying pace advantage, even by his twenty twenty three standards, it was big. That um, a little bit like last year, it, it wasn't really in doubt. I mean, he, he did it from P fourteen last year or fifteen. You know, starting from P six with a similar size advantage that he enjoyed here last year. Not really, no. Uh, There's a little bit of tension around exactly how he was going to pass his teammate, which you may have heard over the radio. Um, the inference of of that, and uh, but that was it. There was no real jeopardy to it at all. There's just um, the the only bit of jeopardy within Red Bull at the moment just come comes from within, doesn't it? It's anytime there's a, a bit of needle between Max and GP over the radio, which I don't know surprises me a bit. You think of the magnitude of the advantage and how serene all of these races should be, and that white hot intensity that Verstappen races in, regardless of the circumstances, just just comes through so clearly in those tetchy exchanges. I've, I feel like we had more of them this weekend than than, than others. I think that's true. Um, I think uh, there were a few, there were a few little um, sort of question marks to be resolved, and um, such is I think the intensity of both of them. Actually, that that. Um, that that's just how they operate. When something has to be resolved or something has to be decided, they, they, there's an air of competitive tension. And uh, yeah, we, it was just because of the the way this race was shaped for them, where the gearbox penalty, where they were starting and things. Otherwise, if it had just been start from pole and going away the front, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have heard much much of that. Um, other than probably the the routine discussion about whether he comes in for the fastest lap or not. <laughs> and I think it reflects also Max Verstappen. He wants to leave absolutely nothing on the table. Maybe from the pit wall, GP wants to have things a little bit more, not left to chance and just lock everything down. But the dynamic by and large seems to work for the two of them. And I have to say, any concern that the Grand Prix today would be complicated for Verstappen. Obviously, there was that little spell at the end of the first stint when uh, when he wasn't able just to close in on Perez. But then, of course, he was ahead of him very quickly in the second. What I like about when um, GP sort of slaps uh, Max down is that I feel like sometimes he's um, he knows he's the only person in the Red Bull organisation who can tell Max off and he just takes advantage of it. And I sort of put this to, to Christian Horner afterwards that we hear it sometimes in other teams, don't we? There's like an escalation when a driver's not listening and really needs to listen. Sometimes another voice comes over the radio and, and sort of, and then you know, okay, I need to take, this isn't a discussion now. With GP, it's, it's still GP, but just a change of tone. Yes, there isn't a higher authority. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As far as um, the Max is concerned, yeah. It's, it's a great tone though, isn't it? In qualifying when Max was concerned about the run plan and he just had GP going, okay, right, Q3, you decide the fuel, you decide the run plan, you do it. Come it's, on. It's beautiful. <laughs> Beautifully withering. I absolutely love it. But the one thing is, we can't call it bickering. Christian Horner didn't like that, did he? Uh, well, I agree with one. It's it's not bickering. It's 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 just um, it's it's a rapport. It's an edgy rapport. Um, and you know, I, I 
I've got a similar one with my brother. It, it's it's <laughs> they, they, they they do have that dynamic. It's 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 sort of younger brother older brother dynamic and um it's it's competitive and edgy but it, it, you know they're looking after each other i have a feeling it will work extremely well for a very long time right up until the moment it doesn't they that they it feels like the kind of thing that it, we've seen it so effective for so long but i can only assume gp must be human and there must come a point where like you just a, you just get a little bit too fed up maybe it's not quite working they're under pressure whatever it is i can see it boiling over at some point doesn't mean that the relationship will be blown to smithereens but it kind of makes it a little bit easier to deal with those high pressure moments when you do have everything else working in your favour like Red Bull and Verstappen do at the moment. Yeah, exactly. The cracks tend to show a little bit more when things are a little bit tougher. But elsewhere, Scott, a Red Bull, how positive a weekend was this for Sergio Perez? He finally got back to second place in a Grand Prix for the first time since Miami in May. Well, I didn't realise it was that that long ago. That's That's astonishing. I mean... On paper, that's great because he finally em emphatically ends his run of poor qualifying performances and difficult recovery drives into solid positions. And finally, you know, like podiums earned from, from the front, leading the Grand Prix at one stage. So all of those things do look good on paper, but I would suggest that the, the manner in which he finished second probably hasn't sent him into the summer break in a positive, move, in a positive mood at all because Max caught up with him very very easily in that first stint while um while uh, you know making ground up after starting a few places further back Perez was kind of holding on okay um at that stage of the grand prix but then once it came to you know it's just the two of them out front they're onto a tire that Perez was struggling a little bit more with Max just left him for dead like the the, the pace difference between the two was enormous and I don't know if it's because when you're on the, the 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 soft at the beginning and the the cars at its heaviest, there's an element of you know Perez's little bit of weakness with the car and not being able to to drive it quite, in quite as edgy a manner as as Verstappen gets masked a little bit and it's just a little bit better because there's a bit more grip, it's a bit more stable, it's a bit more settled. There's just a bit less variance between the two, and then as you sort of stretch that out over the course of a Grand Prix, Verstappen just goes to a level that Perez is just nowhere near. So I would say it's quite demoralising second place in a way. Yeah, but I can see the benefit of just at least getting that second place. That's what he's there to do. I think given how difficult a run he's had, I think it's quite important for him just to do a solid job. Obviously, the gap in qualifying in both qualifying sessions in the tricky conditions was big. It was basically nine-tenths in both. It was pretty close, uh, uh, the, the margin um, across the two sessions, yeah, around the nine-tenth mark. So... It's not brilliant. I don't think it's a massive bonus, but it's a nice, good, solid result. And at least it means Perez can go into the August break thinking, well, I've stemmed some of the losses. I've had a third place in Hungary, second place here. That's okay. It's not stunningly good and that pace gap needs to be closed, but it's kind of doing his job. Mark, Charles Leclerc finished third. Only Ferrari's third podium finish of the year, amazingly. He had Lewis Hamilton on his case all race. Last Lewis Hamilton after the race, if this was one of those classic stalemate races between the two, which he did agree with. But could you see any chance of the positions reversing or did Leclerc and Ferrari always have him covered? No, they had him covered. It was um, maybe only a tenth of a second in, in lap time advantage, but it was always there and the tyres of the Ferrari didn't go off. So the Merck's usual tire advantage at the end of the stints wasn't there. Um, they had a they had a go with the undercut, um, but it wasn't enough. The Ferrari was able to respond to it in time. 
and get out still ahead. Um, so yeah, that that was it really. I think if they'd somehow managed to undercut ahead, they could have stayed ahead because a tenth of a second probably wouldn't have been enough to um, allow Leclerc to re, you know to get back in front. But uh, yeah, they were never in a position to do it. Ferrari executed um, Leclerc's race perfectly and Leclerc did a, a good job and the car relative to everyone apart from Max Verstappen where was was pretty good this weekend yeah solid weekend for Ferrari I think Fred Rousseau was asked about whether the the tyre degradation problems have gone away showing this weekend and he said well when you've got the pace it's a lot easier to manage the tyres and everyone was obviously managing the tyres and I think it says a lot about where Ferrari's been that getting a third podium of the year is a nice way for them to go into the uh, into the break ultimately. How about George Russell, sixth place in the Grand Prix? He seemed to be very quick in the races, not so quick in qualifying. Yeah, I mean, in uh, he, he had a very different. Um, well, he had a, quite a different wing level to Lewis. He had a higher wing level, um, which you thought would have. Um, Come more to his advantage in uh, in the wet qualifying than it, than it did. Um, he's just not he's not in a very happy place with the car at, at the moment. George is is really ever since that update went on in Monaco. Um, Lewis has, has generally been the, the the quicker of the two very consistently, but it's not usually been by the the margin that was apparent this weekend. So yeah, something not quite firing right there for George this weekend. Yeah, he said he felt the car was on a bit of a knife edge and he had no rhythm in qualifying. He put that partly down to the bouncing that both cars had, but he felt it was a bit more pronounced on his car because he had a little bit more uh, rear wing on it. But he was very happy with his race pace overall um, in, in both the sprint and the Grand Prix. So, yeah, it's it, it, it's an interesting little one, that Hamilton versus Russell battle. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that one plays out over the, the second half of, of the season. But, yeah, if Russell needs to get his qualifying form there, obviously he had some bad luck in Hungary for example but just getting that edge of pace I think that's proving a little bit tricky for him and yeah he was happy to uh, admit that Scott Carlos Sainz wasn't a factor in this race because of his first corner incident but what did you make of his clash with McLaren's Oscar Piastri um, um first viewing at the start I happened to be riding on board with Oscar Piastri's um car for for, for the start and I, I, I was initially really disappointed because Sainz is I consider him to be someone who has got really good judgment and, and, and racecraft, and I thought it was, um, I thought it was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty dodgy move on the run down into turn one with the lock up, and then the, the the move across to the right. I watched it back a few times now. Perhaps don't feel quite as strongly about it now as I did when I first viewed it because first viewed it because it's not, um, it's not you know it's not co- like completely unacceptable, and it's certainly not the worst thing we've seen going down into La Source at the start of a Belgian Grand Prix. But the thing that I just don't like about it is that the way Carlos talks through it, he seems to think, you know, it's just Piastri making an overambitious move through inexperience on the inside. But what Carlos doesn't seem to, just doesn't seem to either be aware of or taken into account is that his quite sudden move from left to right after the lockup to then get inside. Is it Hamilton that he's getting inside? Um that fundament that changes his trajectory dramatically into turn one, puts him square like he's going straight arrowing for for the apex. But Piastri's fully committed on the inside by this, and where there wasn't a Ferrari piling in from the left to the apex before, there suddenly is. So Carlos's movement 
creates the the conditions for that clash rather than Piastri on the inside. So it 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 didn't feel like it felt quite within the realms of just oh one of those turn one incidents. It felt something that Carlos kind of caused unnecessarily from in in, in my opinion. I think the other thing is that the lockup actually. Um, it, 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 did it, it, it slowed the retardation, if you like. It, 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 the, the Ferrari wasn't slowing down as quickly all of a sudden. And it was that, as much as anything else, that got Piastri suddenly up the Ferrari's inside because Piastri was just doing the same braking as he'd been doing into the corner. And suddenly, because the, the Ferrari is not slowing down as well, suddenly Piastri was much more alongside it. And I think that 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 sort of changed that dynamic in a split second. I did try to put that to Carlos after the race because I said, "Well, obviously you locked up and you went a little bit deeper than you would have done." He said, "Oh no, I didn't go deep. I got to the apex." He sort of interrupted the question. Obviously, he was being quite strident on it, but yeah, I think it was that subtlety. And, and I'm always wary because he just said, "Oh well, Oscar should have known that if there's cars on the inside, it can cause problems here at the start historically." Well, equally with where you were, you should have known that that could have happened. So I just think it's one of those ones. I always, with these accidents, think uh, and these collisions, think, "Well, who could have avoided this? Who was playing the percentages, etc." I thought that was a slightly uncarlos science-like incident, actually, because as you said, Scott, he's normally very, very sound judgment in races. Oscar Piastri, Scott, would you like? To create an Oscar Piastri sympathy corner for this weekend. Yeah, I need a cardboard cutout of him. That would be um, that would feel fitting. Um, it was obviously incredibly disappointing to have the race ruined on on the first corner, and the race ended not long after that with the um, the steering system obviously broken after he was pushed up against the wall and hit it on the on the front right. Um, but I I think once the disappointment of that fades, and I probably already has for him. He'll reflect on this weekend as yet another step in in his uh, progress as a driver and another great impression that he's left on a lot of people. Um, I think he was just fundamentally quicker than Lando here this weekend. Um, he was absolutely mighty in the middle sector, really you know, eking every last bit out of the the McLaren setup with the the wing that they had here made them really potent in the middle sector. Piastri exploited that really well, took full advantage in the mixed conditions on Saturday in both the sprint shootout and then the sprint race itself, you know, leading early on and then finishing a really assured second. He's just, I, I, I feel like we saw it at Silverstone where he was absolutely excellent from start to finish and deserved to be on the podium. And then had a slightly, um, slightly more difficult Hungarian Grand Prix weekend, which was impacted by damage, but it just, it feels like he's slotting quite seamlessly into that sort of not, not absolute front group, that's where he was at Silverstone, but certainly amongst those lead cars, he doesn't look out of place at all over one lap or even in with his racecraft and race performances. I thought there are aspects of this weekend that made this in many ways his most impressive. I think the fact that he qualified so well, he performed so well in the wet conditions, obviously the main qualifying, he was slightly disappointed, but he'd not actually driven Spa in an F1 car in the dry prior to that and then it was kind of the dry line on the slicks so to be expected really mighty in sprint qualifying as well did a really good job in the sprint race and of course and then of course everything went wrong in the race today but yeah there were elements of this that I think you could say sort of do make this his most impressive weekend which I know is a slightly odd thing to say considering there was no race result but uh, yeah he's having a really good season it's great to see him showing what he can do at the front Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. 
You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Mark, let's move on to Aston Martin. Slightly more encouraging weekend for them, albeit after both drivers found the wall on Saturday. So does Fernando Alonso's fifth place change anything about how we evaluate the team's performances after recent struggles? Not really. The 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 you know, the Aston Martin that we were getting excited about in the first half of the season was um, best of the rest and capable of sticking it on the front row every now and again. Um, this Aston Martin, although it's it's, it's got a, a fifth place result, was you know, a long way off, even you know Leclerc and Hamilton. So no, not no. It's it's it's, it's there's something, and and the, I think we were talking about it last time. It, it can only be that. They put a development on the car that that has taken them in the wrong direction, and we had Mike Crack um, pretty much saying exactly that this weekend. That that they've introduced some traits on the car with the development which they haven't understood. So they you know, they're going to have to either understand what it is and uh, correct it, or sort of work backwards to where they were and then you know try and trace it that way. If you wind it back to Canada, where obviously Alonso finished second and was sort of feeling like he might have had a little bit of a sniff at Verstappen if that race had been able to play out at, at, at full whack. They came away from that, headed to Red Bull Ring and felt that, you know, that would sort of start to validate some other areas of progress that they've made with upgrading the car. But we've now had, what, four different circuits, Red Bull Ring, Silverstone, Hungara Ring, Spa, testing various elements of, 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 of a car's overall performance. And it has been emphatically fifth fastest across the balance of them. So... There's not really a particular strength or weakness being exposed, it feels like. They're just not that that high-performing anymore. Yeah, I think some of it is just not keeping up with the aggressive development race, which they've been trying to do. It's interesting, the whole thing about the characteristics, because I asked Tom McCulloch, their performance director, about it, and he said, the car isn't doing anything unexpected. It's not giving many characteristics they weren't expecting. So it becomes a question of whether they got those trade-offs wrong, because it's all about the ride heights on these cars. Get it? This car doesn't have the biggest, widest window in, in that regard. So you've got to trade off the performance at low, mid, and high ride heights and the transition between them and the interaction of that and circuit characteristics so maybe they've i think it's not that the car's doing something they don't expect but maybe the net result they expected from the slight shift in characteristics hasn't quite given them what they wanted but they're promising lots more developments Uh, they had a floor tweak here this weekend as well as a new rear wing although the floor tweak uh, they said was pretty much tidying up the canada uh, the Canada floor upgrade. And we should note as well, Stroll didn't have that for the races because he broke it when he crashed in sprint qualifying. But Lance Stroll came through with ninth place. So I think fifth and ninth place, solid haul of points. That's okay for them going into the break, considering where they are. Scott, should we come back to McLaren, who you've been following very closely this weekend? Because Lando Norris had a, a really odd race, really. He even seemed baffled at how he managed to turn around being near the back into that seventh place after a pretty horrendous first part of the race. So how did he do it? Well, the initial plummet down the order, and I, I really don't think I've seen anything like it. I, nothing springs to mind, What, like watching that car just go absolutely backwards in those, not even across the first stint because his first stint ended up being cut short. Just those that handful of first laps because the rear wing that they had this weekend just just was costing them so much speed in in a straight line. He was a, he was a sitting duck. So it made he realised very quickly that 
basically by being stuck in traffic as he was as cars kept swarming him um he was getting uh, gobbled up in a straight line but then because he was in a pack he wasn't then able to exploit the higher downforce through the middle sector so it was just wrecking his race. So he was pushing to have um, a change of strategy, get him into clear air, because then if he can drive on his own, he can run at a faster pace than he can when he's in that pack. That's what they tried to do. Then they put him on the hards, but he couldn't get the hard tyre to work properly. And then others that he'd been around in that first stint started to do early pit stops in response as well. So suddenly Norris is surrounded once again by those cars and on a tyre that he and the he just can't get working properly on, on the car. So he's just trapped in what Andrea Stella, the team principal, called was this negative spiral. But what absolutely transformed the race was a very, very good move from McLaren to change to, to soft tyres. And there were sort of two key factors in this. One was they felt that they would have enough good tyre management, partly because of this bigger rear wing protecting the tyres a little bit more um, overall by stopping it from sliding so much, to be able to extend a soft tyre stint that aggressively and get to the end. And partly because they were very closely monitoring the weather, they could see this batch of rain coming and didn't think it would be enough to require switching to inters. It would be managed on slicks and having a set of softs would be the best way to to deal with that. And and boy, were they right, because the 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 speed that Norris had, he was the fastest car on track for for four laps in a row once the once the rain started and the track got a little bit damp and conditions got a little bit tricky. He was taking chunks of like, like three, four seconds a lap at a, a lap at times out of the people he was fighting with initially. He was, I think he took seven and a bit seconds out of Max Verstappen over a four or five lap spell. So all that meant that he more than made up the pit stop loss that he'd just taken and then everyone else had to make their second stop anyway. So all of a sudden Norris is up in, I think, seventh place and obviously he was then in clear air, able to manage his pace properly because he wasn't stuck behind anybody else. He was able to keep everybody at arm's length so that they didn't get in the toe and start gobbling him up again. And it worked out perfectly. But the race could not have been turned more on its head for him and McLaren because it was an absolute disaster in those first few laps and it ended up working out pretty perfectly i mean there was probably nothing nothing more they could have achieved or expected given where he was in the first stint yeah seventh place very good result obviously you held off esteban ocon as well who was closing in on him did wonder if those softs might run out of steam at the end but managed them well and managed to get that uh, that result out of it obviously the mclaren form has been interesting what we saw from them this weekend wasn't what we saw at silverstone or, or hungary but have we learned a bit more, Scott, about the, the overall performance profile of, of that car? Was this a disappointment in any way or was it pretty much in line with their expectations? It was a bit of a disappointment in that they, I think they thought that the the the, the wing that they had um, would offer slightly better aerodynamic efficiency and not cost them as much as, as it actually did relative to the rivals. But basically, the bottom line is they, they've been so focused on this massive upgrade push that they've been introducing these major parts over recent races that has completely transformed their 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 season and their, and their form and was obviously right to prioritise, means that the uh, pursuit of a low drag rear wing just hasn't been high enough on the priority list. Now, it's a big problem for Monza, obviously the second race after the summer break, so they're working on trying to get something ready for that race, but it just meant that they came here without something in the family of rear wings that was actually going to give them the straight line speed they needed. I think on balance, we probably all agree it was worthwhile sacrifice because you're only going to have a couple of races, maybe three to the end of the season that punishes a lack of straight line speed, but it just meant that 
that was going to always govern the the performance we saw this weekend. It played into their hands in the rain hit sessions and stuff like this. It really hurt when they were surrounded by other cars. But ultimately, the end result of the whole weekend, Oscar finishing second in the sprint and, and Lando getting back into seventh in, in the Grand Prix wouldn't have been possible without that wing either. So kind of balanced out in the end. And this just wasn't a track that with the McLaren where it is at the moment was ever going to be fully exploited. I think once we go to somewhere like Zambort, maybe a bit tricky because they're still worried about low speed, but I don't think this was a, a regression. It just was what the car was capable of with that rear wing. Let's go on to Alpine now, Mark. Of course, they lost team principal Otmar Safnauer and sporting director Alan Pomain this weekend, or rather their departure was announced. They both saw out at the weekend. Pierre Gasly managed third in the sprint race and Esteban Ocon was eighth in the Grand Prix. They felt their performance level was pretty good. So where did Alpine really stand on pace? Um, on raw pace, about where they normally are, solidly in the midfield, but the circumstances mix things up a bit with the sprint qualifying being you know, largely wet um, and a few others having problems there, a few others that might normally be ahead. And Gasly did a great performance in, in qualifying in the wet and in reproduced a, a, a really good qualifying, a really good performance in the sprint race and the team turned them around well in the pit stop and he vaulted a few places there as everybody switched to Inters. Um, in the race, yeah, I mean, they showed uh, pace at uh, different uh, different stages of the race, uh, slightly offset on tyre strategy, but yeah, they had dec- decent upper midfield pace. Let's Let's put it like that. Yeah, it was, it was a funny weekend for them. Obviously, the the drivers were trying to accentuate the positive. Esteban Ocon was just batting away any questions about the instability and any of that kind of thing. There was a funny incident in qualifying when Esteban Ocon had his off and uh, damaged his front wing and came back in. And then he was very baffled because he came in. There wasn't a huge amount of time left, but he pulled in with like 2 minutes 23 remaining. So normally you do a, a kind of racing nose change, send them back out get it around and hopefully get into the next stage of qualifying. But they, they took the wing off and there was no other front wing there. Didn't get a very good, adequate explanation for why the front wing wasn't ready to go on the car, especially as he radioed in to tell them. But uh, yeah, some strange things going are going on there. I don't know if that's what's happened if your sporting director gets uh, <laughs> gets the boot earlier in the in the weekend. But uh, I, I don't know if it's down to that. But uh, yeah, plenty going on there. And Scott, obviously... We've got lots of questions from the Race Members Club. We'll get to our question section at the end of the podcast. And I'm going to save quite a lot of those questions because we're going to do a podcast uh, in the coming week about Alpine because there is a lot to talk about there. And we can't do it justice in kind of five minutes on the podcast. But I'm going to take one question to throw at you, Scott, from Oscar Robledo about Alpine just to cover this off in in short form. And you can come back to us in a few days and we'll, we'll have the long form reflective version. Oscar's question is what is going on at Alpine and do the panel think that Renault will pull the plug, leaving the team to the other investors that recently poured in so much money? What's going on is basically, um, uh, I think a, a political, can't use the word I was going to use, a um, bit of a, a political nightmare, to be honest, in that Renault obviously wants um, rapid results and has bigger expectations that the team's not been, um, living up to there's a clear divide certainly amongst the the team leadership that's just left so Zafnauer and, and Pemain about what's actually realistic and, and, and achievable and this this just ever long everlasting mismatch between what Renault management thinks its F1 team should be 
doing and achieving versus what the team's actually capable of achieving and where some of these deep-rooted problems lie. It just, it's just ongoing. So it's just another phase of yet another reset and in a period of stagnation, and it's just a bit of a mess. I wouldn't be surprised if Renault does up and sell eventually, but at the moment, we, we heard so many times this weekend about the blooming Alpine project and that you know the F1 team is basically a vehicle to market the Alpine supposed revival of that brand and turning it into a real tangible thing. Until that, again, quote-unquote, project is finished, i.e. Renault gives up on um, making Alpine a real thing in the real automotive world or considers that job done and it has actually worked, then I think they'll toss the team aside because from all the evidence I see, they're not actually interested in running it as a serious sporting endeavour. It's just a marketing exercise. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot going on there. Ultimately, my position would be if they're not going to let the F1 team run like an F1 team needs to, and there's going to be this corporate interference, then you might as well just cash in on it because you're not going to do it properly. What did you make of it, Mark? You can give a, a short version. Yeah, um, the the problems are caused um, by corporate interference, which goes back several years, and uh, this is the result of the corporates being dissatisfied with the underperformance which they themselves have caused so you know it's just a vicious circle and it's pulled a really good race team down with it in that process yeah and then seemingly getting annoyed with being told the timeline isn't going to fit what they want the timeline to be and it's it's difficult formula one it does take a very very long time basically just go back to the winter find the podcast that we did about ferrari and then just transpose alpine into everything every time we Amplify reference ferrari. A bit, though yeah. they, they, it's, it's a bigger a, a bigger mess up than um, the, the ferrari one i would say that's I must, true I the number that that flitted into my mind when you said that was, well, it's that times a million. So uh, yeah. <laughs> it, there, there's a lot to be done there, and that's why we'll devote a, a full podcast to it. But we want to give you a little bit of a, a taster of it, obviously a huge talking point this weekend. Uh, let's talk about Yuki Tsunoda, Scott, because there's been loads of talk about Daniel Ricciardo recently, including from us, but it was Yuki Tsunoda who scored Alpha Tauri's first point since Baku with 10th place. How timely was this from him? Oh, very. And I was really impressed with him this weekend. I thought he drove, drove really well. He talked on... on um, about his qualifying performance and just about the pressure sort of how how he sort of felt this weekend and he'd put a lot of expectation on himself to get back into the point speaking to him after the the sprint race but in the context obviously of the the grand prix he was um he was borderline like emotional almost when he was talking about how much he needed to get back in the points and referenced that he hadn't been in the points since Azerbaijan. It was really, really important to him. And I was a bit worried in a way because I thought he's putting so much emphasis on this. What happens tomorrow when he realises he's driving an Alpha Tauri and it's going to be really difficult to finish in the top 10. But I thought he drove fantastically in the Grand Prix. Excellent early on. Matt handled everything really, really well. Soaked up a load of pressure in the closing laps from the second Alpine. I think it was Pierre Gasly that was that was hunting him down. So, yeah, really timely and just a really impressive performance. Didn't luck into this at all. It was really hard-earned. Yeah, and Sonoda's had a, a very impressive season. By his own admission, he's had a few little errors recently, but the consistency is coming and he wants even more consistency. And I think he's, he's turning into a very effective and, and pretty dependable Grand Prix driver. And he was that this weekend. So, yeah, impressed with him. How about Daniel Ricciardo? What do you make of his progress, Mark? Obviously, qualifying undermined him a bit for the race because he had that track limits uh, at Eau Rouge. He did fight in the points in the sprint, not quite able to hang on as quicker cars came past, but a decent part two to his comeback. 
Yeah, not bad, but yeah, that that track limits infringement really, really defined his weekend. Um, you know, he would have made it through the next section and who knows what would have happened after that. And so would have started the race much further up and the whole complexion of your weekend changes then, doesn't it? So yeah, um, expensive, a uh, little bit of error of judgment in tricky conditions, admittedly, but, you know, same for everyone. So uh, yeah, a little bit disappointing. Not There's no... Um, big underlying pace deficit, which is, you know, that, that that would be worrying. It was just it was a, just a little bit scrappy. Yeah, 16th place for Ricardo in the end. And where was he? Was he 10th, 9th in the in the sprint? Certainly, uh, Ocon and Russell came past him late on. He just didn't quite have the tyres to hang on to that position. So, yeah, it was always going to get a little bit uh, harder after the uh, promising first weekend. But I think over the two weeks, he's, he's done fine. It's a nice foundation, a nice little taster, and he's well ahead of where he'd be worried to be parachuted in after the break. So positive from that perspective. How about Williams, Mark? Alex Albon and Logan Sargent had great first stints. Albon was up as high as seventh. So people may be wondering how they ended up gradually becoming more anonymous and finishing 14th and 17th. Yeah, that um, third stint that really destroyed the rear tyres. It's just the car running, you know, the the way to get a lap time out of it, even by the standards of spars, to run it very low on wing. And um, as Alex tried to push through the middle sector with that, it just destroyed the rear tyres and uh, you had to make a... Well, they both had to make third stop, so um, yeah, three three stop was definitely one, at least one stop too many for the for this race, and that's yeah, that's why they faded. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, as always, our last section is dedicated to questions from the Race Members Club. Thanks to everyone who supports the race through the Members Club. And for anyone interested in joining, head to our website and click on Join the Race. First up, we've got a three-part question from Tim Pat Diffisi, which we can take one part each from. And it seems it's very much a family trio of questions, apparently composed while walking the approach to Eau Rouge, picking up marbles after the race. So we hope you had a great weekend, despite the weather. Scott, the first question is from Jerry, nine years old. Do you think Piastri is the best option? 
option to replace Checo Perez next year. Ah, uh, I think um, I think he's absolutely someone Red Bull wishes it had its hands on. Um, actually, a long time ago, Red Bull had an option to bring uh, uh, Piastri into its junior program when Piastri was starting out his junior single seater career. He was racing for for for, for the Arden team, which uh, Red Bull has some uh, familial ties with, um, with with Red Bull through through the Horner family, um, but opted against it and. You can understand why, because Piastri really started to flourish as he rose through the ranks, and F3 and F2 were superb. Really, really got good as he got into into F1. And I think Rebel really kicks itself for missing out on that as a as a talent. Don't think he's necessarily the best option for to replace Perez. I think, um, but I think he's better off where he is at, at the moment. I don't think it would be wise for him to step up and get burned against someone like Max Verstappen this early. Plus. I also think Oscar might be a bit too good for Red Bull to put in as their their second driver because I think I think they like having a sort of subservient number two and I don't I think Piastri's too good to settle for that role. And the second part of the question, which I'll take, comes from Reggie, aged seven. Why did Hamilton pit at the end and not take softs to go for the fastest lap? You know, well, Hamilton did get the fastest lap on mediums, obviously. Why didn't he take softs? I would presume it's because he didn't have any new soft sets left. He did have used soft sets, but they'll be a little bit harder to fire up, plus they're used, so they'll have had the best taken out of them. He did have a set of fresh mediums. In fact, he had multiple sets of fresh mediums owing to the amount of wet running, so it's logical to take the fresh mediums, and given the pace overall, all, that's not going to make much difference. You don't have to do a qualifying lap to get fastest lap in those scenarios. But that's why he didn't take softs, which would indeed have been the logical choice if he had a fresh set. And Mark, this one's labelled my question, so presumably this is from, from Tim. He says, having spent the whole weekend at the source, I noticed Lando Norris took more curb than anyone else. This was throughout all the sessions. Why would he be on such a consistently different line to all the other drivers? Um, understeer on the exit, I, I would imagine. In slow corners, you watch the McLaren and that's what it does. It sort of loads itself up quite early. And then on the exit, it just seems to just run out of front grip. And uh, yeah, so it, it, it puts it defines a different line, that, that handling trait of the car, which is one of the weird traits that um, McLaren drivers have, have talked about over the last few years. It's that. It's always interesting when you are watching trackside, like those details you see, absolutely right to have picked up on that one. So a, a very good question. Scott, a question from Simon Ems. How far back does Max Verstappen have to start for it to actually be a challenge for him? Uh, if we'd left him in Hungary, there might have actually been half a decent race today. Um, I, I think I on a track like this where you can overtake and the Rebels certainly no, no slower than it is, um, anywhere else, I, th- I think he could start last and win. I, I don't. I don't think there's a position far back enough on the right circuit for it to be. No, not a challenge is a bit unfair because he he does have to work for it. Obviously, there's so much goes into picking your way through the order. I, I wrote a piece about that last year here when he did that great rise through the order. It's so measured, so well judged. So so that is a challenge. But I understand what Simon means by the question. It's, you know, for it to be properly hard, for there to be proper, proper jeopardy, I don't, I don't think there is. Yeah, I think on a track where overtaking is possible, I agree. You could start from the back. Obviously, you couldn't do it from Monaco, but it, tracks where like here where you, you can overtake, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd put money on and win from the back. I was thinking he should just have to do the full number of race laps, but on the older configuration of Spa. <laughs> that would do it. That would be an interesting one. 
Next question from Thomas Knight for you, Mark. How disappointing was this weekend for Russell? He was not really close to Hamilton at any point this weekend. Obviously, we touched on Russell earlier, but I just want to expand this a little bit, if uh, Thomas Knight will allow me. But just how disappointed do you think Russell should be in general with the way things have gone since that upgrade? I know for a fact that he'll be very disappointed and he'll be questioning himself. He'll be looking what he can do better. Um, I think that it's a bit of a mystery to him just what's going on in terms of where, where's McQualifying. He thinks of himself as a super fast qualifying driver. He has been throughout his career. He's always been faster than his teammates. And all of a sudden, that's not happening. So, yeah, um, he will be in a, a difficult place, but I'd put my money on him putting it right. The next question from Helmut Gashauser, who says, why did Aston Martin send out Stroll on medium tyres in the damp conditions? I would have thought that the softs are the ones which are switched on easiest. Now, this was sprint qualifying, he says, trying not to get confused between the uh, two qualifying sessions, which does happen on these sprint weekends, for me at least. Uh, yeah, they did send him out on mediums in the damp conditions. Yes, softs would have been the logical one, but this was not a wet session. Yes, it was a wet session, but it wasn't officially so. And that meant that the requirement to use mediums in SQ2 applied. So if he went out on slicks, they had to be mediums. They'd have loved to put softs out. I did ask Tom McCulloch, their performance director, about this uh, this, this morning, and he wasn't very impressed at the late change because they'd also strategically opted to give back a, a set of uh, a set of mediums to maximise the softs they had available, anticipating this sort of scenario. So they weren't very happy with that. So still need to tinker a little bit with things. It was obviously a wet session. It's absurd. If you can have a process whereby a session is declared wet, it's absurd not to declare a wet session wet because you're worried about the tyre thing. So they need to tidy that up and it did create that situation, of course, just as the extra insult to injury. The fact that Stroll crashed ruined Fernando Alonso's qualifying as well. So, uh, yeah, not good for Aston Martin. Scott, a question for you that comes from James and Shelley Lee. Was there an alternative for McLaren today? I know they were forced into a larger rear wing than they ideally wanted because they prioritised other upgrades. Was there anything that could have been done to limit the damage? Does this mean future struggles are on the horizon? Uh, yeah, in hindsight, McLaren probably would have gone for the slightly smaller rear wing they did have in their arsenal. It, it, it does come at the cost of aerodynamic efficiency. So what they would gain on the straights they would lose more through the corners than I'd, they'd ideally like but what they've come to realise and obviously you only discover this as the weekend plays out is that the upgrades have worked so well that even with that reduced aerodynamic efficiency they probably would have still been really competitive in sector two relative to everybody else so they probably could have given themselves a few kilometres an hour more on, on the straights wouldn't have been transformative but in hindsight probably would have made life a little bit easier. There were some other things as well, small changes to how they used the tyres and and uh, what ride heights they would have would have gone for if they could run the, the weekend again. I, I think it depends entirely on what kind of solution they have for Monza in terms of, you know, does this mean problems further down the line? And Vegas is another one that looks like, you know, really long straight, so that could be a problem there. But as long as they ready something that, in Andrea Stella's words, can mitigate the problem, then they won't have anything as dramatic as this. But they, they're going to need to work pretty quickly because obviously the summer shutdown means they don't have as much time between um, now and Monza as just looking at a calendar would uh, suggest. Question next for you, Mark, from Jay Coffin, who says, while Max seems to be destroying the field so hard that the only people he has left to battle are his own crew, to what point can Red Bull top brass let this periodic spike of tension raise up? And given the stubborn, hard-headed nature of Max, how can they really solve this? Obviously, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but do you think that they need to intervene or is it absolutely fine? No, it's fine. It's not a problem at all. That's just how those two individuals interact. It's not a problem. It, that, that is how they 
work together. That's how they've always worked together since 2016. Um, Christian Horner absolutely loves the, uh, the the sparky relationship they have, um, and he was uh, he was taken on because he was such a strong character, a strong-willed character. That's what he wanted, and that's what he got. And he was actually interviewed for the job as well as by Red Bull personnel, but by Sebastian Vettel, whose race engineer he was going to be before Seb left and went to Ferrari. So he ended up with uh, Daniel Kvyat for a little while, and then by default. Max, but he's, he's ac actually ended up the perfect um, foil for Max, and uh, it it's it it sounds like um, uh, disagreement. Uh, well, it, it it is disagreement sometimes, but it's not it's not the sort of dis it's not ill natured disagreement. It's just two very strong willed people communicating very very directly. And um, to English sensibilities, perhaps that sounds a bit, you know, oh, there must be something up there. There's not. That's how a lot of cultures communicate very effectively. And that's how those two individuals co communicate. It's funny you mentioning Sebastian Vettel interviewing there. Of course, Sebastian Vettel, not averse to doing fastest lap attempts against team instructions as he used to do back in the Bridgestone days in particular. It wasn't even a point for it then. He just wanted the fastest lap. A question now from Tom Bannister, who says, do you think the FIA and F1 are too cautious when it comes to wet weather? There seems to often be such a delay that as soon as the cars hit the track, they're already on the intermediates. There's a few things there. I think they have to be cautious when it comes to wet weather, particularly here at Spa. The limitation is often visibility. This weekend, it was primarily visibility that was the problem. Driver said it's you know, almost the worst they can remember because you just can't see anything. So that often limits it. Obviously, aquaplaning can be a problem at times. That wasn't a huge problem, actually, this weekend in general, but it's one of those two limiting factors. So are they too cautious? I think generally they let the race go when it's safe to do so. But there's a little bit of a safety margin in there. It's better to do it one lap too late, two laps too late than too early. There have been times, I think, when they could have done it more decisively, but I don't think it was too bad this weekend. I don't think the sprint race with, I think, the four laps under the uh, the safety car were a, a problem. We should also mention that there's also the tyre issue here in that the reason it's intermediate straight away is the wets don't perform that well. The crossover point is too low for them. They don't have enough grip. So you have absolutely got to get off those wets as soon as you possibly can because even the inters in slightly tricky conditions will be a lot quicker and Pirelli have admitted that they need to do some work on the wet tyre as well. George Russell called it a pointless tyre. It's often referred to as a safety car tyre. I think it was Sebastian Vettel who, who, uh, who came up with that. So there's a few things going on there. I'm not going to complain about caution at Spa. Drivers were calling for that going into the weekend. So let's let's be careful. And um, I know it's tempting to kind of think, oh, the drivers are being cowards, etc. But they always want to race. And if you're going along in a projectile at 180 miles an hour and you literally cannot see, then... Yeah, what could you do? And even when they did get racing, obviously he's got your Nico Hulkenberg uh, on board that you found uh, illustrated the problem. Yeah, that was really, really quite amusing. It was when um, it was when uh, Alonso came out of the pits in in, in the sprint, and um, Hulkenberg was trying to get past him on the exit of La Source, got forced a little bit wide, so had to uh, tuck back in on the run up. Au Rouge and then up the Camel Straight, got in the toe, pulled left went to pass him on the outside into Lacom and um, both of them got on the brakes with this massive wall of spray in front of them into the braking zone only for Hulkenberg to very quickly realise they'd both slowed down way too early and he literally got back on the throttle again before getting into the corner and passed Alonso around the outside. 
Scott, the next question from Phil Wright. Were you surprised to not see Sainz penalised for the first lap incident with Oscar Piastri, or was it just part of the usual first lap chaos? So, uh, a little bit of both. So, I was a little bit surprised just because, personally, I, I think that this was a bit more than just the normal first corner, first lap kind of thing, because I think there was a, de a, a deliberate controlled move within it from signs that I've personally found a, a little bit careless and I don't like the idea of drivers thinking that it's the wild west into turn one and you can just move and change directions close to the braking zone without any care for consequences so for that reason I would have actually been okay with it being penalized because I think it would have just been a deterrent from people doing that, that kind of thing in the future but because we have this rule whereby there is extra leniency on, on the first lap. And I take the point that Oscar Piastri made, which is that he also feels maybe he could have done something a bit different. Either been, he even suggested maybe if I'd been more aggressive on the brakes and got fully alongside, Sainz wouldn't have been able to do it. I just I let it go. It, it, it annoyed me in the moment, but it's not something that I'm going to lose much sleep over. Piastri's very good at calculating his involvement in incidents as well and how could I have done better, which I really like to see because that's always an important thing. It doesn't matter whose fault it is if you're out the race. You've got to try and calculate these things. So, yeah, interesting little uh, little character trait there. Mark, JK says, has the time finally come for the stewards to admit that they very clearly take the outcome of an incident into consideration instead of just judging the incident in isolation? I'm not sure what it's a reference to. Maybe the Hamilton-Perez thing and the, the so. sprint... Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that's what did happen. Um, but uh, yeah, I think for, for most people that was a, a straight racing incident and it seemed a harsh penalty, but, um, yeah, I, I, you know, without being in the room, I wouldn't like to say that's what, um, that's what, what the process uh, of the discussion was. And I, I do know that it was four different people and the, one of them was the driver, Stuart Derek Warwick. And I do know it wasn't um, a universal um, view of those four people. Make of that one what you will. I should say, actually, stewards will privately admit that the outcome can make a difference. In fact, I'm having a conversation with one steward some years ago saying, actually, well, it, it kind of has to, just as it does sometimes in a court of law. So it will have uh, it will have played a, a part. But there's a question connected to this that I'll take from Liam Robinson. What are your thoughts on the race stewards this weekend, mainly the penalty for Hamilton in the sprint and not declaring SQ2 a wet session? Well, I've covered the wet session. That didn't make sense. The Hamilton penalty in the sprint, I thought, was odd. Yes, their rationale about the fact he took a bit of curb understeer into Perez. Yeah, that all happened. But it was tricky conditions. It was a racing situation. And my general feeling always is that, uh, that to lean towards often not penalising in these sorts of cases. But I get why they got there with the way, well, as soon as you start applying all these guidelines, I've complained about this before, it, it gets problematic. But yeah, I think that didn't need to be uh, penalised. And my suspicion is that actually the outcome did play a part. Because I think if they'd had contact and there wasn't a hole in Perez's side pod that ruined his race, and I don't think it would have been done. That's just me speculating an opinion there. Scott, James and Shelley Lee ask, my question is regarding the second half of the season. After Williams openly admitted it targeted key races like Canada and Belgium for maximum points, it got me thinking. With the tracks coming up, who is the best place to maximise their return in the second half of the season? Is McLaren's new dawn a bit false with tracks like Singapore on the horizon? Who has the best package of the midfield teams to really maximise points from the range of tracks left? I think it's too difficult to judge it over sort of um, specific tracks suiting specific cars. I think it's close enough in each stage, each 
each phase of the grid from that lead group that McLaren is now firmly part of behind Red Bull and that that little gaggle of cars fighting over seventh in the constructors championship that that Williams is in there's there's so much there's so much at stake and there's so much that can change based on small things like how the team nails the weekend, what they do in terms of upgrades, how the circuit characteristics suit their packages, that I think it will change weekend to weekend. So I, I, I definitely think, in taking McLaren as an example, there are going to be races between now and the end of the year that bring out the worst in that package, having seen a, them bring out the best in it. But I still think they're arguably on balance, probably going to score more points than Aston Martin, for example, because they do just seem to have a better performing car. And when you then look at the the others, uh, the Williams group, for example, I just think that if you take their peaks and how sustainable that car is within its peak, then the Williams is the best placed car to score points in, in, in that group. Because I think for a Haas, for example, those peaks come on Saturdays and then they will just go backwards. And they've got some upgrades planned and they hope to make a little bit of progress before the end of the year, but it's probably not going to be enough to, to land an absolute massive result. This is obviously all dependent on some dramatic circumstances. What year was it in Brazil where I think Sauber scored just an absolute monster haul of points in like 2019 or 2020. Must have been 2019. Scored a huge number of points in that chaotic race with their cars, I don't know, like fourth and sixth or something. So that kind of thing can happen. But in normal circumstances, I would say in that group, I would say McLaren would outscore Aston, but probably not outscore Mercedes and maybe not even Ferrari. And then on that secondary group, Williams, I think, is best place to fight for, for seventh. Mark, the next question for you from Juan Jose Aguirre. It seems Perez is slowly getting back his confidence, but not enough to be at the level of Max. My question is, why do you think they always start the season more on par when it comes to race pace? But as the season progresses, Max's race pace keeps getting better and better. Is it that Max can unlock more settings in the car, given that he understands the upgrade process and pipelines better, plus his brilliance, of course, or something else? Spa seems to be a track also that Max excels at. I'm just trying to understand, where are those 20-plus second gaps between him and Perez coming from when it wasn't like that in Bahrain and the other races before Perez's rough patch? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there are at least two components to it. One is, as you say, um, as you discover more about the car, you discover more opportunity. And um, someone of Max's calibre is able to really exploit those, pro probably more than Checo can. Uh, the other thing is uh, psychological, and I think this is probably a bigger uh, influence in this case, in that, uh, you know, Checo came in finding he was quite competitive with Max at the beginning of the season, just as it happened the uh, previous season, and started to get ideas once it became apparent how big this Red Bull's advantage was, that maybe he could fight Max for the championship because there weren't going to be any others that were going to be fighting for the championship. And he sort of kept that dream going for a few races. And then he, I think, he just got such a pummeling that um, he lost that belief and he had a bit of a confidence crisis. And he's still sort of the, the back end of that, really. He's, he's, he's probably he's probably come he's come out the dip of it, the, the, the lowest dip of it, but I don't think he's back to where he was. Um, so, yeah, there are a couple of elements, at least two elements to it. 
Well, thanks very much for your questions. We haven't managed to get through absolutely all of them. We'll try and revisit a few in the week, and certainly the Alpine-related question. Those of you who sent in Alpine questions, we will go through those definitely in the, the first podcast we do in the coming week. Well, I say the first podcast we do. There might be some massive breaking news, because I think we can remember, Scott, that there was quite a big piece of breaking news at the start of the August break last year. As, uh, Fernando Alonso will definitely be driving for Aston Martin in 2024. Well, let's see how that works, because when you made a similar claim about Alpine in this equivalent podcast last year, it didn't go entirely well, but I think you're on safe ground this time. Well, thanks very much, Mark and Scott, for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen loads to read there. Check out our other podcasts, including our IndyCar podcast, Formula E. Bring back V10s, the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson, and also have a look at our YouTube channel. Lots of short and long-form videos there. Well, the August break may be upon us, but we're going to keep going here at the race, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.